1 John 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and our love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath, hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. You may be seated. Good morning. I greet each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be back here, and for those of you who may not know me and my family very well, we actually did attend church here for a year and a half back in uh, 2006 and following, but many of your faces are new. I do see many familiar faces. So it's good to be with you this morning, and, and I've enjoyed the worship time thus far. Let's start with a remembrance from my preschool days. As a preschooler, I had a bedroom in the upstairs of our house. The walls were painted an obnoxious shade of green by today's standards, and a bed in the one corner. And on the other wall, my father had constructed some temporary closet shelving. I guess we didn't have enough closet space. It was made out of two-by-fours, and to hide all of the stuff that was there, we had curtains strung across the front of that. And in my little boy mind, I was convinced that there were monsters behind the curtains. And so, as I would, especially at nighttime, and as, as I went up there to bed, I uh, made sure to uh, dive under the cover, covers deeply in order to be protected from the monsters that were behind the curtains. Well, nothing ever materialized, and I stayed safe and sound and eventually moved on. Later on in my teenage years, we uh, lived in another house, and again, I had the upstairs bedroom. This time, the walls were painted blue. Um, there were no curtains for monsters to hide behind, but there were other monsters. Um, 
in my teenage years, those fearsome things were the, the insecurities, um, peer pressure, the, the worry of social acceptance, you know, things that teens sometimes deal with or older people. And then I got married, and I didn't believe in monsters anymore, but they still showed up sometimes. Not monsters, really, but what, what do married adults fear? For me, it was the ability to provide sufficiently for my family sometimes was a worry to me, or the loss, possible loss of health for myself or for my wife and children. You've probably all heard it said that 90% 90 of the stuff that we worry about doesn't ever come to pass. And that may be true. I never did a survey on that. But what about the 10% that does? And some of those things did come to pass for me. Some of the very things I worried about. I remember my one daughter in the hospital for 10 days in Africa without the assurance that she would come out again. She did, and God has blessed her with good health. I remember the poor purchase of a minivan. It turned out to be a lemon, and uh, it died prematurely. And we were kind of in tight financial straits, so we bought another cheap vehicle to get by until the ship came in. And it died prematurely as well. And I found myself kind of looking at the bottom of the flower barrel for a little bit. But God took care of us. This morning I'd like to think about fear. And I don't think any of us are immune from that. Sometimes we call it other things. We call it worry or anxiety, maybe insecurity, trepidation. We, we use different words. But I think at one point or other, all of us have dealt with fears. And I don't know what you think about when you think about the opposite of fear. Many times I've contrasted that with the idea of courage, if I could only be courageous. But this morning, I would like to contrast fear with love and say that love is the opposite of fear. I'd like to develop that idea a little bit. The title of my message is Perfect Love Casts Out Fear. So, for starters here, I'm not discussing the positive fear of God. I will be talking primarily about negative fears, the fears that get us down, that make us incapacitated or unable to function properly. What is fear? The dictionary defines fear as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that something or someone is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat in our lives. So that definition implies that fear is a belief system, but it's not a belief in God system, I might add. Fear is often imagination-based. What if this would happen? What if this would go wrong? And it's usually not reality-based, because when we are in the reality of something, 
that is the way it is. Um, it's often looking forward to things that might happen, and sometimes those things do happen, as was my case, but many times they do not. And so for, for myself, I found that that imagination is often worse than the reality. That's fear. Fear tends to conjure up a scenario that seems to be greater than God's power to deal with it. And of course, in that sense, fear is a lie because what is greater than God's power? What is there that God cannot deal with? So fear is a lie or an exaggeration. I think of characters or groups in the Bible who experience fear, and and we all experience this emotion coming to us at one point or other. The question is, what do we do with that emotion as it comes? I think of the 12 spies who were sent into the land of Canaan. They went across the border, and what did they see? They all saw the same thing. Ten of them came back fear-filled, and they described the giants that were so intimidating, and they felt like they would not be able to conquer those giants. They would be defeated. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, knew that with God's power, they would be well able to overcome the giants. Here again, it was fear was uncertainty of the future. But there were two there that had a certainty of the future, didn't they? They knew that God had the future in His control. I think about Elijah after his Mount Carmel experience, and he had killed those 400 prophets of Baal, and then he fled off to the mountains alone because Queen Jezebel was seeking his life. And he said, I am the only one left as a follower of God, and they seek to take my life. Was that true? Well, they were seeking to take his life. I think that was true, but he was not the only one left. God told him there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, 7,000 maybe hidden worshipers of God. So in Elijah's case, what he was thinking was not entirely accurate. I think about Abraham going down to Egypt, and there he misrepresented his relationship with his wife. He said, she is my sister, because he feared what Pharaoh would do to him. Probably inaccurately, because I believe God would have protected him, and as it turned out, Pharaoh didn't do anything bad to him. There was Esther, who became queen of Persia. And her uncle, Mordecai, said, you need to go into the king and represent God's people because of this threat that is coming upon them. You need to represent to the king the people and and ask the king to free them or to commute the sentence. And Esther thought, what if... What if the king doesn't hold out his golden scepter? What if I'm punished for approaching him inappropriately? Of course, that what if never happened either. 
So in each of these scenarios, we, we, we see these biblical characters who we admire, many of them, struggling with fear, struggling with the what-ifs, the, the non-realities in, in many cases. We also see that God came through for each of them and that He provided a way. How is fear manifest in today's world? None of you have been called before the king of Persia or been threatened by a pharaoh, probably. I think fear can be... It's not always the... Well, let me back up here a little bit. Possibly some of you have tried to, to catch a chicken if you're involved in farm endeavors. And you come suddenly upon the chicken, the chicken kind of does this little shake and just settles down into the floor. Recognize that? Um, that that deep, debilitating fear makes the chicken unable to move. And, and sometimes fear is manifest in that way. But often it's not. It, it's, it's more subtle. Fear is shutting up when we should be speaking up sometimes. When we don't want to say the right thing because we we're afraid what would happen. Fear is lying awake at night and feeling out of control. Fear is failing to seize the opportunity until it's too late. We miss it. Maybe fear is praying fiercely, determinedly sometimes, but only when we're in trouble and not the rest of the time. Fear is despair. And sometimes fear can be manifest in other ways that are, that are more subtle. In ways like manipulation. Trying to take control of the situation because we feel out of control. Back to the example of Abraham. Abraham was in Egypt and he came up with a plan to save his life. She's my sister, not my wife. Is that God's plan? No. But Abraham took control, or he, he tried to take control of the situation. It didn't end as good as it could have had he just trusted in God, I believe. Fear is also sometimes manifest by, by reactions or a loss of control or by outbursts. I think of King Herod at the time of Jesus' birth, uh, where he, in his fear, I believe, that another king would rise up had all of the baby boys under the age of two killed. That was reactionary. Fear is also shown by irrationalness. As a little boy, going under the covers to be protected from monsters. I mean, if monsters actually did exist, what would covers do as a barrier? That was an irrational thought. But as adults, sometimes we allow fear to lead us into irrational thinking as well. Norman read us the scripture here in 1 John, and if you still have your Bibles there, I'll be referencing that um, further throughout the message here. In verse 18, John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. Where is fear from? Fear has torment, and 
Other translations, some of you may have, would translate that word as punishment. And I don't think that comes from God. I believe that comes from the enemy. If fear is, in fact, an exaggeration, a lie, we know that Satan is the father of lies, and God is the father of truth. So fear is from our enemy. Fear is a lie in that it misrepresents God's ability or His power that is available to us and His love for us. There's another verse in 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I'd like to look at those words just a little bit in their original meaning and open that up. I'll, I'll read it again. For, not, for God hath not given us the, the spirit, the pneuma. That is the same word that is used for the spirit of God. But this is not the spirit of God. It is another spirit. But the spirit of fear can indwell us in the same way that the spirit of God can indwell us. It's just the wrong spirit. God has not given us the spirit of cowardice and timidity, but the spirit of power that's dunamis, that's might and force, ability, energy, and the spirit of love, agape love, and of a sound mind, that is self-control, prudence, self-discipline. That is the spirit that God offers to us, that He wants to give us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about casting down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I think that casting down imaginations may touch on this issue of casting down fear or putting away fear. Paul further encourages us in Philippians, and I'll read in the ESV, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is where our focus is to be, not on those imaginations, what-ifs. So, what spirit do we have? Is there room in our lives for more than one spirit? The spirit of fear and the spirit of God? God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love. And I'd like to focus on that counterpoint now. Love as the opposite or the contrast or maybe the antidote to fear. What is love? I used the word agape love just a moment ago as the Greek translation for the word love there in in 2 Timothy. Agape love is one of the, the, the Greek language is lovely in that it gives as many as seven different words for love. But agape love is, is the premium love. It is the love of of choice, that is the love of choosing. It is not necessarily the love of, of, a, of a feeling. It is an unconditional love. 
I love despite situations or circumstances. It is a sacrificial love that suffers inconvenience. It suffers discomfort. It may even suffer death. In the case of Jesus and his love for us, he sacrificed his life for us. Scripture says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is agape love, as exemplified by our Lord. The Bible is very clear where love comes from. God is love, it says here in 1 John. It also says earlier, love is from God. The wording is abundantly clear. And I don't know if if we have come to grips with that statement or not. I don't, I for one, don't fully understand it, um, that God is love. But let's just try for a moment. Let's say that there's a person that is a peacemaker, for an, ex- an example. Do you say that that person is peace? Or do you say that they are peaceful? I would say that they are peaceful, not peace. When we say that God is love, we mean that God is loving, right? But we mean more than that. We mean that He is the essence of love, or love is His being, not just a characteristic of Him. That is something that I can say, but I don't fully understand. We as humans can't understand the essence of God. That is because God is much greater than we are. But love is His essence. I'd like to read another scripture from Ephesians just to bring this out. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When did God love us? God loved us when we were dead in sin, when we were enemies, when we had rejected Him. That's agape love. There's nothing we did that made us worthy of that love. He loved us in spite of who we were. Ephesians also calls us to be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And also here, the portion that we read in First John, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. That's a brief snapshot of what love may look like, and we could spend all day there, I'm sure. But I want to get to the, the title of the message, and that is that perfect love casts out fear. Not perfect courage, but perfect love. How does that work? I think of the example of Peter, Peter, that impetuous disciple, so courageous sometimes, so fearful at others. 
Jesus has been taken by the soldiers, and he's heading toward crucifixion. And I think that fact is finally dawning on Peter. And as Peter is there eavesdropping on the beginnings of the trial, a servant comes up to him and asks him, are you connected with Jesus? And Peter's like, no way. And he does this three times. He denies his Lord. When Jesus next meets Peter on the beach, there's a nice little parallel there. And Jesus comes up to Peter and he asks him three times, the same number as the number of denials. Peter, do you love me? And I find that's an interesting contrast. Peter, three times out of fear, said, I don't know you. I don't know Jesus. And Jesus, in in writing that situation, asked three times, do you love me? I believe that if Peter would have had love perfected in him, at that time of denial, he wouldn't have denied his Lord. But Peter's Peter did not yet have love perfected in him. What does it mean to have love perfected in one? In understanding this, I I keep turning to human examples that I can relate to. Many of you are parents with little children, or you have been in the past, and probably all of you have placed your child on a high object, and then as, as a father you held out your arms to them and said, jump. And they just dove off, fully expecting that you would catch them, totally confident in you. You've probably also had children who met a stranger and were very distrustful of the stranger. And they wouldn't even, they wouldn't jump off into a stranger's arms, let alone even talk to the stranger, right? There's a difference in relationship. And I think that picture is is the beginnings of the understanding of love perfected or perfect love. The love that a parent and child have, if the relationship is good, can be an example or a picture of the love that Jesus has for us. The relationship with a stranger maybe doesn't exist at all or is definitely weaker. And as I think of that relationship, child to father, I think of a bi-directional love. Dad loves little child, and the little child loves dad in return. So that's the way it should be, anyhow. Romans talks about the relationship that God has with us in that way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery or bondage to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father again, the ESV. Contrasting here the spirit of fear and the condition of sonship, or that relationship that we have with God in love, that adoption it's talking about is a relationship of love, the love that casts out fear. We know I believe we we would all agree that God is all-powerful. We also know that God loves us and has our best interests in mind. So, God's love is perfect. And when John here talks about 
love being perfected, he's not talking about God's love getting better because God's love is as good as it gets. So I believe that perfection needs to be done in our hearts, in our lives. If we believe truly that God is all-powerful, and that God loves us and has our absolute best in mind, then to fear is to reject or disbelieve that. Because we are doubting God. Another example from the Old Testament, I was just reading the destruction of Sennacherib with my high school students. So thinking about the Assyrians... 185,000 strong came against Israel with Sennacherib as their leader. If you had been inside the city there, what would you have felt like? Fearful? Think about that scenario from God's perspective. This huge army coming against a smaller and much weaker nation at this point. God's probably thinking... Look at Sennacherib's 185,000 little ants crawling down there. I'm just going to send my angel down. He's going to breathe on them. They're all going to drop over dead. So easy for God. Something like that happened. The Israelites, in their limited perspective, probably didn't feel it that way. They didn't see it that way. But as we enter into God's love for us, we realize that he does have our best interests in mind. I'm thinking about Stephen also, New Testament story. Stephen was a early church deacon. He was also a preacher, preaching deacon, I guess. And he got in trouble with the religious leaders. And they stoned him for his testimony. What do you feel from the story of Stephen? Was he afraid? I'm not seeing it in the text. I mean, sure, there's those emotions that went through him, but he seems to have dealt with those. And he's kneeling there, the book of Acts records, and they stoned Stephen. Stephen calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm not reading fear in that. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or died. Even in the midst of that, I'm feeling forgiveness. So not only is he receiving the love of God, he is also extending the love of God to his persecutors. Now you may be feeling like what I'm talking about is a lot like trust as well, and it's really hard to separate the idea of trusting God and loving God. Uh, I think we can separate them, I mean, we we can talk about them differently, but the ideas are, are thoroughly connected Trusting someone is maybe not as deep as loving someone. Maybe it's more foundational, but doesn't go as deep. Trusting God says that, God, I know you're able. I believe you can do this. Loving God is much more deeper, more intimate, more personal. It's like saying, God, I know you have my best in mind. And I'm totally okay with you carrying that out in my life, no matter what that looks like. 
even if it doesn't look like what I envisioned in my feeble little brain. God, you can have all of me. Just whatever you want to do, because I know you love me and I love you. That's a little bit deeper than trust in my opinion. I'm thinking about another example. Young Isaac, as Abraham is taking him up to the mountain to, to follow God's instructions and to offer him on the altar as a sacrifice. I don't know how old Isaac was, but I'm, I'm seeing some of you young men here and I'm, I'm envisioning Isaac. I'm pretty sure that Isaac could have beat his dad in an arm wrestling contest. And, and Abraham takes Isaac and he puts him on the altar. What was it that kept Isaac on that altar? Was it trust? Yeah? Was it deeper than that? Was it love? Did Isaac think that he would get out of this at that last moment? Or was he just saying, Dad, I love you. I, I accept this for whatever reason. You know what's best. That may be a, a bit of a frail human example of God's love for us, but I think God intended for that to be something that we could relate to. Love perfected. How does that work? I've kind of hinted at this already, but I think there are maybe three parts to love being perfected in our lives. As I already mentioned, God's love is perfect. It doesn't need any more help. So that's not what we're looking at. But we need to, to have love perfected in us, as John talks about, to accept, and the word is too light, but to accept the love of God. I, I was searching for a better word because acceptance is just like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, but maybe to embrace the love of God as is extended toward us. I, I have to think of an example of courting or a dating relationship. Some of you may have had the scenario where you married your grade school sweetheart and lived happily ever after. Some of you may have had the scenario where you had to convince your wife to be that you loved her and that she loved you. And it was, it was a pursuit. It was a journey. I think that picture may be a little truer to type of God's love for us. Because God pursues us, but we need convincing sometimes, don't we? And then there comes that point in the, in the dating relationship when the lady is convinced, at least sometimes. That's the way it happens. And she returns the young man's love, and they share that love. Does she accept the love? Yeah. I think she embraces the love. She, she receives it wholeheartedly. So I would suggest to have love being perfected in our hearts, we need to embrace the love that God extends to us. Second, we need to love Him wholeheartedly in return. And then third, we need to extend that love to other people. Because John is very clear here that if we do not love our brother, we don't love God at all. So those may be three parts of having love 
perfected in us. I notice also some other hints here in 1 John, and I'd like to just pull out a few of these. Belief is tied to this. Um, Obviously, if we do not believe in God, uh, we cannot love Him. Verse 15 that we read here in chapter 4, "...whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God." And then 16, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. It seems like, the, like John is struggling with the wording here to put this into an understandable language for us, but in order to experience God's love, God needs to be in us and we need to be in Him. And we need to confess Him with our mouth. Um, we need to say and do as we believe in Him. Verse 16 also talks about to know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. Uh, this, is, this is a choice. It's not always a warm, fuzzy feeling, but this is the agape love. The love that chooses, despite the circumstances, to love God. And our ancestors, those who were persecuted for their faith, made that choice. And that choice for them sometimes involved suffering. How can suffering mesh with love? And we sometimes struggle with the question of how a loving God can allow His people to suffer. And that's not really my topic this morning, but I believe that suffering can actually draw us to the Father and can perfect our love in Him. And I don't really say that out of deep experience like some people might be able to, but that is my understanding of it. I've recently been reading through the allegory, Heinz Feet on High Places. Some of you may be familiar with Hannah Hernard's uh, famous allegory. And it's allegorical, so it's a story that could not be true. And there are people in there that represent um, the, the relationship of God with us. And the book brings out the, the main character, her name was Much Afraid, learned to love the Good Shepherd through times of suffering. And I do believe there is something significant there. I have heard that back in the 1800s, the the colonial days, the the days of the frontier, that sometimes a mother would take her young child to the open fireplace, to the hearth, and purposely burn that child with a coal, just a little bit, an ember, um, in order to teach the child that fire was dangerous. And the saying goes, no sorrow in the child will mean sorrow later in the mother or something like that. Now, you might object to that form of parenting, and I might too. But I think God parents us sometimes in a similar manner where He burns us or allows us to be burned, allows us to suffer a little bit in order to protect us from greater loss or greater danger. If done in a proper attitude, and of course God has that proper attitude and perfected love, suffering can draw us closer to Him if we receive and embrace that as a, as a teaching tool and a, actually as God's love. 
So despite the, the backwardness of suffering to our human understanding, I believe it actually can be an expression of God's love for us. How else is God's love perfected in us? 1 John 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says, But whoso keepeth his, God's word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. That is also abundantly clear. If we do not obey or keep the Word of God, I don't think we can have any expectation of His love being perfected in us. Later in chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This to me speaks of a singleness of heart, a dedication not being distracted. If we have the world in us, the love of God isn't in us. Back to John chapter 4. There's one other thought that I would like to catch here. And, and I think maybe this is actually the essence of John's message when he was talking about fear. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. I think John, among other things, but maybe primarily, was talking about fear in the day of judgment. If God's love is not perfected in us, if we are not walking in relationship with God, then we have reason to be fearful. The Bible talks about those who cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them because they don't want to see the judge. But if we have had the love of God perfected in us, we do not need to fear. We do not need to fear a coming judgment because we have relationship with Him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Do forever abiders have anything to fear? He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. When we dwell in the love of God perfectly, we have freedom from fear and from judgment. I'd like to close with the scripture in Romans, and I invite you to turn there as I read several verses. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35 and reading through the end of the, through the, end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't these the things we tend to fear, the list that's given there in verse 35? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Romans is very clear here that these threats cannot in any way separate us from the love of God if we truly embrace God's love for us. And that's my desire for each one of us this morning as we do life, that we would recognize the fullness of God's love, that we would receive that, accept it, and embrace that, and allow that love to deliver us from fear. If you're able, I'd like you to join us as we kneel for prayer. <clears throat> Father God, loving Father, I want to thank you for the great gift of love you have given to us through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you because you loved us first even when we were vile, wretched, unworthy. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would recognize and internalize the fullness of your love for us, that we would live in that fullness, live in that abundance, live above fear, live with hope of the end and not fear of judgment. God, we lift up your name because you are great. We want to honor you as you work out your best in our lives. We bless your name. Through the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.